I V M. Hey folks, we're Teams Planner. Welcome to an all new episode of Press Decode, a weekly podcast where we take Planner's mission to declutter the news one step further. Check out our newsletter for more stories and follow us at Planner In to keep up with all the fun things that we plan for our Planner fam. So sit back, relax, and don't let the news give you the blues. I'm Prafulla Grace, your host for the day, and both Sara and Vagda are with me on this episode. As always, we have three segments for you. In our big story, we're talking about the many troubles of fintech company Bharat Pay and its infamous co-founder Ashneer Grover. In our food for thought, we're taking a look at Chinese censorship of media and drawing parallels to India. And then, in our final segment, we will be roasting and toasting our fave and least fave items. So, on to our big story. First, what is Bharat Pay exactly? Founded in 2018, it is a digital payment platform that helps small to medium scale merchants. So, why did it explode? What Bharat Pay did differently was setting up QR codes that could be used with any payment platform, unlike Paytm and PhonePay. It also allowed merchants and shop owners to receive money by allowing direct transfers to their bank accounts without a fee, which had been the norm at the time. It also has a bit of a Cinderella story. The original founders Shashwat Nakrani and Bhavik Kolaria struggled to find investors. That is until they hooked up with Ashneer Grover. Grover, who you may know as a judge on Shark Tank, was an investment banker with Kotak Mahindra Bank and was working as CFO of Grover's before he jumped onto the Bharat Pay bandwagon. He soon became a co-founder and the face of the company and changed the trajectory of the company massively in a matter of months. In 2021, The company had 7 million merchants registered in 130 Indian cities and had distributed almost 300 million to its merchant partners. In the meantime, the company quickly became an investor's dream. In its latest fundraising round in August 2021, uh, Bharat Pay raised a whopping 370 million dollars, bringing its total valuation to 2.85 billion dollars, which in turn granted it unicorn status. All of this sounds great, right? Not really. In January this year, a leaked audio clip of a phone call between Grover and a Kotak Bank employee went viral. Grover and his wife uh, Madhuri had apparently been assured funds of two fifty crores each in order to buy Nike shares. When this fell through, Grover hurled abuses at the employee, and when I say abuses, think Delhi, and even issued weird threats of getting him killed in an encounter. So this clip kicked up a real shitstorm around the company, and seedier details began emerging. Uh, so apparently, Grover's behavior is a well-kept secret in business circles. From what I've heard from Sara, he is brash and loud on Shark Tank, and unsurprisingly, much much worse off-screen. Reports soon have emerged of Grover screaming at the CEO of Sequoia India, which is Bharatpay's leading investor. And despite all of this, Grover was kept around because he brought in the big monies. In the midst of all this controversy, it was revealed that former founder Bhavik Palladia had been convicted in the U.S. for identity theft and credit card fraud. Former because Palladia was relegated to product head by Grover soon after he came on board. Uh, now we don't know if the investors, including Grover, knew about this or even cared to begin with, but it did reveal a bunch of skeleton in the Bharat Pay closet, ranging from bad behavior to even worse governance and 
terrible business practices chalo so if you've seen shark tank india which shamefully my darling co-hosts have not both of them you'd know ashni <laughs> I'm very proud of it please if nothing the memes make it worth it memes are anyway you know i'm 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 on board i'm like totally informed about the memes look at vag that trying to be all gen z so <laughs> cute <laughs> Anyway, you'd know Ashneer has made a lot of hue and cry about multiple businesses not being sustainable on the show. So he's had issues with some people saying you have too much family interference. Sometimes he doesn't like the product itself. And let's just say nitpicking is a skill he's a master of. Mm. So needless to say, pre the Bharat Pay debacle, my grumpy ass loved him. But one shit hit the roof with Bharat Pay since the beginning of the year with that absolutely horrifying leaked audio clip allegedly between Grover and a Kotak Bank employee. I've been super intrigued by him as an entrepreneur. <laughs> the word cracks me up ever since Shark like Shark Tank has come up. Anyone who watches it will know why. So needless to say, I was hooked onto this masala style reporting about him demanding crazy payouts. I mean, he's demanded a four thousand crore rupees payout to leave the company. and he wants the ceo to quit and what not so i dug deeper and well was kind of surprised to find out that bharat pay is pretty much plagued by everything that could go wrong with a startup like prafulla pointed out the kotak incident wasn't his first big meltdown in august 2020 he used very similar language in a nasty nasty argument with a sequoia india executive and yet the fund continued to invest in multiple rounds since then at least kotak decided to go the lawsuit way but bharat pay's dazzling fundraising success meant that all investors have until now just chosen to turn a blind eye towards the shitstorm brewing in their backyard until obviously right now where they're realizing it's more of a liability and it doesn't help that bharat pay is run simply as a one man show where i quote aggression and foul language are more norm than exception to make matters worse the audio clip also brought into the limelight grover's wife madhuri jain grover a former fashion designer who controlled all the company's accounts and expenses to add to the family dhanda accusation madhuri's brother-in-law deepak gupta took care of administrative duties according to an ex employee between the three of them there was no visibility on how the company conducted business so yeah pretty much they ran their own show as a family business which as i have understood is something that startups usually try to steer clear of i mean it's the antithesis so to say of this papa ka business mm-hmm. and it's not just that they're in positions of power not that that's okay but there are also clear examples of them abusing the power as well from diverting payments to non existing vendors to creating shell companies to take fees for head hunting while not using any head hunters and just using company networks to hire They've reportedly shortchanged the company time and again. A former executive told the Ken at one point, merchants were given Bharat Pay branded cricket bats and balls. This was procured at rupees three hundred, but the company was billed at rupees nine hundred, a whopping three times in excess. This is just one example. Ah, uh, but this is a very, very common an example when you're running a business. I mean, I've seen plenty of such models when. you know i was doing my other loyally gigs loyally gigs of course okay so to continue the saga of doglapan let's talk about bharat pay's own business model just as he disses other people's ideas nice so before upi and qr codes became a thing the most important and universal method of payment was via card 
But the point of sale machines or POS machines issued by card companies charged a certain percentage of every transaction as processing fee, which was collected from the merchants. So with Bharat Pay's new QR code business that enabled instant transfer of money, charging no transaction fee whatsoever, it quickly and very obviously became the most popular form of payment method with your local Kirana shops hosting these QR codes all over their walls and their tables and stuff. And it shows as most of Bharat Pay's merchants are unorganized mom and pop stores, which are now present in over 200 cities. But then how does Bharat Pay make money, right? This is going to be a long explanation, so please bear with me. In 2020, Bharat Pay ventured into the POS machine market. Again, within six months, it made a big dent in the market uh, with 100,000 machines compared to the total number of machines in the country at that time, which was about 4.5 million. How? Same thing. No transaction charge. So where is the money-making bit again? Here is the catch. Most POS companies charge about 1-2% to as processing fee on every transaction with a payment processing duration of T plus zero, which means that the payment reaches the merchant's bank account that very day or the next day, which is T plus one. Bharat Pay devised its own solution. It will not charge you anything as processing fee, but your money won't get to your bank account for 15 days, far longer than card companies. Bharat Pay then uses this money for 15 days for its lending business. In what seems... Yeah. In what seems like an order to cull this exact business, the RBI mandated that payment aggregators must transfer the funds to the merchant within a day or max by the next day from when they receive the funds. So then what did Bharat Pay do to get around this? It now takes explicit consent from its merchants to hold that amount for 15 days, promising up to 12% return on that money. And this is when Bharat Pay doesn't have a license to run a lending business at all. Sounds very shady, right? I'm fascinated that he's pulled this off. <laughs> Shady, thy name is Bharat Pay. <laughs> but here's how they do it. How do, how do, where do they get the borrowers from? Hmm. Formal lending business in India has been traditionally carried out by banks or NBFCs, which are non-banking finance companies. And in the informal sector, it's done by money lenders. Now, in the fast emerging fintech sector, peer-to-peer lending platforms have emerged. And they are regulated by the RBI. Bharat Pay partners with some of these P2P lending platforms like Liquid Loans and Lend and Club, where they basically share data equivalent to their mailing lists. Lender merchants on these platforms get access to borrower merchants on Bharat Pay and hmm. vice versa. Hmm. So for Bharat Pay, the money comes from charging borrower merchants an interest rate as high as 24% offering about 12% to the lender merchant. And after deducting the P2P platform's share, Bharat Pay makes off with 9 to 10% return. And this structure accounts for 50% of their lending business and appears very much in violation of RBI's P2P lending rules, which mandate that a lending business has to spell out who it is lending to, which is not done by Bharat Pay. And it's supposed to have a proper bad loan reporting mechanism, which currently is happening only from the P2P lending platform's records. Nothing is coming on record for Bharat Pay. So it's basically in the lending business without following any of the rules of lending. It's surprising that they got away with this for so long, no? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's shady business all across the board. If you're being sneaky, choose a lane, either business (laughs) strategy 
या बिजनेस प्रैक्टिसेस यू कैन हैव दिस वियर्ड रोहित शेट्टी स्टाइल वन लेग इन बोथ बोर्ड्स एंड इट्स स्टिल ऑल गोइंग नॉट इवन सरप्राइज्ड इट केम टू बाइट देम एंड ऑन दैट नोट we come to the end of our first segment we will be right back after a short break you are listening to press decode on the ivm podcast network hello and welcome back to press decode on the ivm podcast network we're team splainer and make sure you follow us at splainer in on instagram and twitter to keep up with the splainer fam So in addition to the Olympics China has also been making headlines for outrage over its censorship in its latest escapade the Chinese government has revised the ending to the 1999 cult classic Fight Club yes we are breaking rule number 1 don't talk about Fight Club spoiler alert here if you have somehow not watched or heard of a film that is older than Sara wow But- <laughs> That is something I didn't see coming, but it also lets me get away with saying, "Well, it's older than me. That's why I've not watched it." You're welcome. Okay, but don't fret. The original ending was restored. Now, adapted from Chuck Palahniuk's novel of the same name, this is a satirical commentary on consumerism. And here's the TLDR: An unnamed protagonist is stuck in a boring routine and an unfulfilling job when he meets Tyler Durden. After the main character loses his material possessions in a explosion, he and Tyler form the imaginatively named Fight Club. Over the course of the film, we find out that Tyler is the protagonist's dissociated identity, and the film ends with the main character shooting himself in an attempt to stop Tyler's plan to blow everything up. He does apparently kill Tyler but is unable to stop mass explosion. The movie has a cult following and anecdotally I can tell you that the fan base is made up almost entirely of film bros. Yep, yep. Yep. Anyway, since it is so loved, the fact that China censored the anarchy in the end really upset a bunch of fans. And this is how it ended. It fades to black documentary style and tells you that Tyler Durden and the rest of Fight Club was arrested and that Tyler ends up in a mental hospital and is discharged years later. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is moral policing to another level. <laughs> However, the funny bit is the author Palinik himself doesn't mind. In the novel, the bombs fail to detonate and while Tyler shoots himself, he wakes up in a mental institution thinking he has died and gone to heaven. Sure Tyler. Obviously, the ending was revised for greater visual impact in the movie, but Palinik says that oh he's used to these revisions. But this revision has given uh, rise to a greater concern. China's need to control its image and the media that Chinese citizens consume. We know that the government has had tight reins on all media to avoid subversion of its authority and its tactics include strict controls using monitoring systems, firewalls, shutting publications or websites and jailing critics. And it is especially hard on video games and social media. There are Chinese equivalents of WhatsApp, Twitter, Facebook and the gay dating app Grinder was recently taken off the App Store and uh, the government also swiftly deletes anything that criticizes it on social media like tennis star Peng Shui's accusations of sexual harassment by a government official or even the whole controversy after Jack Ma's mysterious disappearance but what drives the government to relentlessly censor the way it does and why 
So I think we should look at the roots of censorship in China. Some researchers have gone far back into the Ming dynasty that ruled between 1370s and 1450s to trace the roots of social control. Then there's some writing that says that the root actually lies in the constitution and its four cardinal principles that were set out during Deng Xiaoping's time, that's late 1970s. The Chinese constitution explicitly bars publishing content that may lead to incitement to secession, sabotage of national solidarity, disclosure of state secrets, promotion of obscenity, superstition or violence, and harm to social morality and the excellent cultural tradition of the nation. Hmm. Of course. Now, I don't know about you, but this sounds very similar to the restrictions under 19.2 of the Indian constitution. It all depends on how far you go in thinking the content is offensive. In terms of the internet, though, in China, there is one additional factor. And that's secret document number nine. This secret circular of 2012 set out seven ideological dangers that the Chinese government needs to keep at bay, especially on the internet and in academics. What are these seven dangers? The promotion of Western constitutionalism, universal values, civil society, neoliberal economics, freedom of the press, historical nihilism, and the challenging of Chinese socialism. Coming back to films. Fight Club isn't the first foreign movie to be victim of censorship. There is a long list. And when I say long, I mean long. Really long. And there are plenty of reasons for it, ranging from unflattering depiction of China, depiction of ghosts and supernatural elements, cannibalism, dystopian themes. I mean, really, that's ironic. And political reasons like not upsetting a religious community. But of course, homosexuality has been a long-standing reason for censorship as well. In 2018, Bohemian Rhapsody, the biopic on Queen's lead vocal Freddie Mercury, faced cuts relating to Mercury's sexuality. At this point, I don't think there are going to be any spoilers because <laughs> story, and I'm just going to say what scene was cut out. There was a scene where Mercury tells his fiance that he's gay and that his lover is introduced in the movie. So that was cut out. In 2017, that was pulled off from the Beijing International Film Festival. In terms of law in China, the country enacted film industry promotion law in 2017, which gives even broader powers to authorities than before in defining what is offensive and what needs to be censored. To give you more detail, this 2017 law does not allow the exhibition of a film that jeopardizes the country's unity, sovereignty, public order, social ethics, or disrupts social stability, propagates superstition, or defames cultural traditions. So basically, just as vague and broad as the constitution. My last take here is just that Chinese lawmakers are in desperate need of help with drafting. I'm not going to offer my services though. Yeah, I was just going to be like, this is such a lawyer joke. I'm like, at this point, you will only have to go explain the joke and do it for them. No, not doing it. Anyway, now as much as Chinese policies always tend to straight up stun me, fun fact or not, India too isn't far behind on the film censorship train. Oh, ding, and- ding, ding. Oh, that's where I heard it. <laughs> And considering Trafula and I are the resident grumps, let me remind you we take our role very seriously. So in case you, unlike like, like Trafula, weren't very sure where you've heard about it, let me remind you. You'll be fascinated to know that a recent report by a United States federal trading agency said 
An increase in censorship-related policies and practices in India has affected American businesses across different media segments, including film, social media, and video streaming. So, woohoo! Essa Chinese overtake linge. The report mm-hmm. focuses mainly on India and China, in addition to four other markets that are understood to be key threats: Russia, Indonesia, Vietnam, and Turkey. Great company to be in. Mm. So the Indian Commerce Ministry is yet to respond to this report. But the fact of the matter is that we do have some moderately concerning censorship practices in the country. And one of the points that the report makes is specifically to do with something called the Cinematographer Act, our own Desi-style manual for censoring movies, but legally. The first rule of releasing a film in India, you don't talk about releasing a film in India. What do you know Okay, for anyone who hasn't yet figured, I have not watched Fight Club, but well, I am 22. I do consume a fair amount of pop culture. So this was my sorry attempt at making a Fight Club ref. <laughs> Swiftly going right back to the Cinematographer Act, it basically governs the certification of films. It declares, very similar to Chinese laws, a film should not be certified for public exhibition if in the opinion of the authority competent to grant the certificate, The film or any part of it is against the interests of the sovereignty and integrity of India, the security of the state, friendly relations with foreign states, public order, decency or morality or involves defamation or contempt of court or is likely to incite the commission of any offense. Any offense. Humbly yes. offering my services, my drafting services. To the <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, oh, you, oh, so, very China made in India. China, why do you do it? Why do you do it? It's not nationalism. Hai. Very nice, very nice. You know, I so, realized that this is literally the, hey, can I copy your homework? Sure, but change it up a little meme. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, a lot of things can fall under the shall not be certified category. Mm. Of course, the fence to our national sport. But the problem now is thanks to an April 2021 move, something called the FCAT or the Film Certification Appellate Tribunal was dissolved. Before this, the Supreme Court had ruled that once the FCAT had weighed in, the government did not have revisional powers to demand changes to a film. So what did the government do? Well, they abolished the FCAT itself. Ta-da! Wow! Problem solving koi is government se seekhen. I'm getting very Article 370 flashback. Yeah, a barrier in your path. Well, don't fret. Dissolve the barriers. <laughs> And to make matters worse, the government plans to add a new clause to the Cinematographer Act. And here's how that is going to work. Say some group complains that a movie violates anything mentioned in that key clause, that is national security, public order, etc., etc. The government can choose to overturn the certification given by the CBFC, which is a certification board, and send a movie right back to the board for further review. Mercifully, this amendment has been on the back burner since July last year. But if you need some reason to fret, because I can't let you go away on a happy note. Movies like Bandit Queen, Urta Punjab, Babu Mushai, Bandook Baas, Kalakandi, Rangila Raja would not have made it to your screens if not for the FCAT. Wait, isn't it Kalakandi? It can't be milk cake, yeah. <laughs> Oopsie daisies. Hey, I'm South Indian, guys. And on that note, we come to the end of this segment. We will be back after a short break. You are listening to Press Decode on the IVM Podcast Network. Welcome back to Press Decode on the IVM Podcast Network. It's time for our final segment this week, Roast or Toast. And since someone decided to ditch Team Grinch this week, I'm holding down Fort. 
North Korea has been growing its nuclear and ballistic missile program, and which is not surprising, but there's more. Pyongyang's uh, main source of revenue is cyber attacks on crypto exchanges. The country has extracted nearly 400 million worth of digital assets last year. And in 2019, these government-sanctioned crypto heists generated almost $2 billion for its WMDs. Yep. And I am nearly fully convinced that we are living in the matrix. This is a big fat L for the crypto guys, but at what cost? Uh, Sarah, be careful. You're our only crypto guy. <laughs> no, no. I tried and I failed massively. So I'm no more a crypto guy. Are we sure that they're not the reason why you failed? Mm. Mm. Anyway, I have a favorite item, but it's worth it. Say hello to the world's most exciting new combat sport. Drum roll, please. Fight Championships. It involves reality stars, MMA champs, wets, and housewives indulging in, I quote, hardcore swinging with specialized pillows. Yes, this exists and it looks like a ton of fun. So you have to understand that I've never as much understood the S of sports. And my singular sporting medal was in sixth grade when I got the silver in an interhouse badminton tournament. Surprised? Confused? Everyone was. Except the problem or the good part for me, only two players had shown up. And, when I came, <laughs> and I came second. So yeah, the PFC gives me renewed hope that I can have something to do with sports after all and maybe get that second medal in life. <laughs> my favorite item this week is from our Monday edition. Oh my God, I loved it. So every international airport has an airport code that is granted to it by the IATA, which is the International Air Transport Association. The three letters that sit on your boarding pass are basically what your airport code is. So Delhi is D-E-L, Jaipur is J-A-I, Bangalore is B-L-R, Goa is G-O-I, because Goa as in G-O-A was already taken by Genoa in Italy. So what's the airport code for Gaya? G-A-Y. Gay! <laughs> now, there's nothing wrong with the code except that the parliamentary panel finds it offensive and inappropriate and embarrassing. And the ministry is helpless in trying to get it changed because the IATA won't change the code unless it has something to do with safety. Bliss, I think IATA is also enjoying it. <laughs> Excuse me, IATA? It's safety, safety to Indian culture. And obviously, obviously, the gay propaganda boils down to Gaya Airport. Like, I'm just trying to tell everybody here that Sarah's being sarcastic. It's not evident. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> In case it's not. It is 100% like sarcastic. <laughs> and that was our show this week. Thank you so much for joining us on Press Decode. You can catch us every Thursday on the IBM Podcast Network. And guys, please remember, don't let the news give you the blues. <laughs>